Good morning. Would you all pray with me? Father God, we are grateful people. And um, we confess our ingratitude as well. Um, God, we ask this day that you would put a thankful heart into us. That you would put gratitude on our minds, in our hearts, and in our mouths so that you would be made much of. God, what is there? What work, what good thing is there that you have left undone for your people? Truly, you have given us all things by the giving of your Son. And so we have every reason to be grateful. So would you put a grateful heart in us, and would you use your word to do it this morning? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 50. And I know what you're thinking. This doesn't really sound like an Easter psalm. It sounds more like a Thanksgiving psalm, maybe, if you were able to catch the main thrust of it. Um, And you would be right, but the reason I feel like the Lord uh, has us in Psalm 50 uh, today is, have you ever been um, experienced that where in your walk with Christ, he, he keeps bringing the same idea to you from different corners, right? A conversation at a coffee shop, a book you're reading, a sermon that you hear, and it's like it's coming at you and everybody's sort of pointing you to the same thing. Uh, well, this, this week, or for a couple weeks now, it's been the, the notion of gratitude and the importance of us being, um, us being grateful. And so um, this psalm really has much to teach us about, especially at, uh, around the Easter holiday, about what it means, what it looks like, and what's at stake in our gratitude. How important is gratitude? Well, this psalm is going gonna, is gonna to help us. So... Um, let me, uh, let me say this before we dig in. One of my favorite authors talked about um, when you're, let's say you're at Christmas time and you've got this little toddler who uh, granny gives him a present and, uh, and he opens it and he's enjoying it, but he doesn't say thank you right away. And dad comes and he says, hey, you need to say thank you to grandma. And grandma jumps in and says, no, 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 like we, we want him to mean the gratitude. We don't want to be told to give thanks. We just want him to mean it. We want it to just spontaneously come from his heart. To which a good dad will say, give me five minutes and he will mean it. Right? Sometimes, sometimes going through the motions of gratitude is important. It's certainly not where we want to stay. Nobody wants to stay there of like, okay, thank you, Lord. I don't really have gratitude in my heart, but I know it's the right thing to do, so I'm going to say thank you. It's never where we want to stay. But if the alternative is just to be silent and thankless, um, we need to not do that. Sometimes we need to just uh, go through the motions praying that God would let fire fall from heaven and make us truly grateful. So this psalm has several movements to it. The first is what I would call a summons. That God is going to summon not just his people, but everybody. He wants the whole world's attention. Look at this with me in verse one. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth. You can circle the word summons. He summons the earth 
Notice, not just his people, but the earth. How much of it? Well, from the rising of the sun to its setting. That means everybody everywhere. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God, and it should read, has shone forth. This is a past tense reality that God has shined out his glory and his beauty, and he's done it from Zion. And this is going to be, uh, this is going to be really important, but the, just as a, a sort of, to, to plant it in your mind, that God has been publicly good to his people from Zion. He's done us good, publicly good. And so he's shown, he's shined forth into the world. And so God is summoning uh, everybody everywhere. And then he's going to address his particular people. In verse three, it says, our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, in verse 5, gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Selah. Okay, there are certain types of failures that only believers can do. Okay? There are certain failures that unbelievers can't be a part of. It's, it's only fails that we have. And this psalm addresses one. But before God addresses his people's sin, he first calls the attention of the entire world. It's kind of strange. He doesn't just call his wayward sons. He calls everybody, listen to this, and then he addresses his wayward people. We can learn a lot from this, but what I want to remind you of is the public aspect of our faith. God does not merely intend to do his covenant people a lot of private good. It's not that he just wants to be your God in your prayer closet. He does want to be your God there, but he wants to be your God in the public, in a public way. On the contrary, he wants to do his people good in such a visible way that the world in both the seen and unseen parts, would sit up and take notice of the way God interacts with his people. The way we behave and the way God interacts with us is meant to display something about the character of God to the world. Okay? Let me read this to you. This is from Numbers chapter 14. It's the story you know very well, I think. Twelve spies go up and spy out the land that God has promised to give his people Israel. They've been redeemed uh, out, of e- out of slavery in Egypt. And now they're standing on the cusp of conquest. And 12 spies come back. Ten say we can't do it. Two say we can. And the covenant people of God, in their fear, they, they're, they're saying there are giants in the land who are going to eat our children. And so this is the, um, hey, bud, can you knock that off? You're kind of distracting me a little bit. Um, what, they, what they decide to do is they decide to elect a leader to lead them back to Egypt. Think about that. God has famously publicly uh, delivered his people from slavery and destroyed this nation. And they want to elect a leader to take them back to slavery and... Just for good measure, they decide they're going to stone Moses to death with stones. It's an amazing 
fail of gratitude for the people of God. And so um, the Lord says to Moses, this is Numbers chapter 14, verse 11. Just listen. You don't have to turn here. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. I will make, he's talking to Moses, I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Now think about this. You're Moses. You just were sent by God to deliver this people. You did amazing miracles um, to deliver them. And now in ingratitude and unbelief, they've rejected God. They've been giving you a hard time the entire time. Now God says, I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to make you a great nation. What do you say? Sounds like a great plan. Thank you, God. They need to go away. Let's do this. Let's start afresh. Listen to what Moses, how Moses prays. Moses said to Yahweh, then the Egyptians will hear of it. God, this is why you can't do that. Because the Egyptians will hear of it. Because you brought up this people in your might from amongst them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land. God, your reputation is at stake in how you deal with your people. Because you saved them so publicly. The Egyptians will hear of it. And they will come, he says, and tell the inhabitants of this land. They will spread this message about you, O God. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face and your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. He says, everybody knows you're with them. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land That he swore to give them. That he has killed them in the wilderness. God has been so public in his goodness to them. That if he reneges on his promise. If he doesn't follow through. The nations will say. It's because God wasn't able to do what God intended to do. So Moses says your reputation. Your public reputation is at stake. Unless we say. Well. That sounds all great and well and good, but we're in the New Testament. That's Old Testament, as though that should make any difference at all. Listen to what Paul says about New Testament Christianity. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable Riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that, listen, through the church, it's you and me, so it's not just an Old Testament idea, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Now question. The manifold wisdom of God needs to be made known through the church to whom? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, 
our Lord. The idea is God is good to his people in, a, in such a public way that the world, seen and unseen, can look and see how he has treated them. So, in our text, the Lord summons the whole earth so that they can hear him rebuke and remind his covenant people of the essentials of our faith. Why? Because when God's people get the covenant wrong, we get it wrong publicly, and we end up preaching falsely about our God. Okay? There is no way that Christians cannot preach about our God. We're either going to preach good sermons or bad sermons, but we are going to preach. So the question is, what exactly did they get wrong? Now, he's going he's gonna, uh, gonna to speak to what they were doing and how they are doing it. So look in verse 7. So what exactly is God going to rebuke his people for? In verse 7, he says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. So again, he summons the whole earth so that he can address his people and say, I'm speaking against you. And hence is a reminder, I am God, your God. That's kind of a great way to say that. It's like, it's like a dad saying, I'm your father. Listen to me. You, you, you're forgetting something about the way we relate to each other. Listen to me, Israel. I'm going to testify against you. I am God, your God. Now in verse eight, it's not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Okay, the idea is they're doing the stuff that he tells them to do, right? They're doing all the stuff. There's this sacrificial system that they're supposed to participate in. And it's not as though he's saying, you're not doing the things I told you to do. No, they're doing those things. Their offerings, he says, are continually before me. But in verse nine, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? So we're showing what they didn't do. They didn't neglect the system of worship. But the question was, how were they doing it? And the context gives us the answer. Why would God say, I'm not going to accept something from you because everything is mine? And why does he remind them, I don't eat the stuff you're sacrificing? Why? Well, it's because they were sacrificing to God the way pagans sacrificed to pagan deities. As though our deities need what we have to give them. It was how they were doing it. They were supplying some need in God. Sometimes, listen to me, it's not what we do, but why we do it that matters most. So why does God intend the whole world to hear this word to his people? Well, when Israel treated God like he was a common pagan deity, they did so while the world was watching. Okay? So they're going through the ceremonies. They're doing all of the things. They can say, Lord, you told us to do these things and we're doing these things, but it was the heart of ingratitude with which they were doing it that he calls them to account for. So when we go through and we can do this, bare and lifeless ceremony, 
we conceal the truth about God. There are believers in the world today that worship on Sunday mornings as though they are filling up what Christ is lacking. They see themselves as completing his work, and this is a terrible error. So what do we need to do? If, we're, if, if I'm telling you, and I'm telling you that you can do all of the right things in a wrong sort of way and preach a wrong message about God, how do we get it right? What was lacking in their service? Well, he gives, he gives the, um, the indication in verses 14 and 15. How does God want us to do this? Well, in verse 14, he says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Listen to me. He doesn't want your stuff. He doesn't need your stuff. It's not as though God is weak and he needs you to give. Rather, he wants you to be grateful for the gifts that he has given you. This is the fundamental problem that Israel fell into and that we fall into all the time, is that we think God is receiver, God is taker, and we are givers. We are the ones that that pass our stuff on to him. And it's exactly the opposite. They were giving sacrifices as though if they didn't, then God would starve. This ridiculousness is easy to spot in other people, but we often hear people in the church talking about the church being one generation from going away. If if the church is faithless in one generation, we're one generation away from extinction. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's like saying if we don't sunbathe, the sun is going to quit shining or run out of light. It's not the way it works. It's not the way it works at all. This is a command to live consistently with the world as it is. God has everything. He's given us everything. He wants us to make it fruitful and then return daily and weekly to him to hold up our fruit and say, thank you, Lord. Today, I give you back what is your own. This is the command is to be grateful. Do you know why we aren't grateful? We aren't grateful because we think that fundamentally our relationship with God is one about me giving to him so that he will bless instead of understanding that God is the one who has given everything to us so that we will be glad and grateful. That's the gesture of Christianity. Now, he gives a warning in in, um, the first part in verses 7 through 15. He gives a warning to his people who are doing the right things wrongly, which I think... If I were going to, uh, there's two groups of his people that he addresses here. And I think if there's one side of the coin that we might struggle with, it's the first. Doing the right things in a wrong spirit. I, he, he does, though, address a second group of people who were, um, as it were, looking at the people doing the right things wrongly. And they just said, okay, so we just won't do the right things. Listen to what he says to the second group. But to the wicked, wait, is he talking about his people, calling them wicked? Yes, he is. He's, and, and I'll show you this. To the wicked, God says, what right have you to receive my statutes, to recite rather? What right have you to recite my statutes? Let me ask you something. What wicked person, what pagan wants to recite the statutes of God? Answer, nobody. He's talking about people who are fooling around with the covenant 
fooling around with God's word. That what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant to your lips? Well, why is he calling them wicked if they're trying to recite his statutes and take their covenant to his lips? The answer is in verse 17. For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. You take my word that I give to my people and you cast it behind you as though it doesn't matter to you. You cast it behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. And you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. And you thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and I lay the charge before you. That is so frightening. You thought that you were getting away with it. You thought that God was just like you, but the opposite is true. And he's going to hold us accountable. The first was a word to people doing the right things wrongly. These are words to those who refuse to do the right things at all. This word marks many Christian churches in Fayette County. So let me, let me say this. When you ask about what is God doing in a particular place, you need to not ask about what God is doing in the particular lives of people, although that's important. You need to not be asking what God is doing in particular Christian camps in that area, which might be important. How do you know what God is doing in a particular place? The answer is you look at the church. You look at the state of the church in that particular place. And this is a word that marks Fayette County, the Fayette County Church. Okay? They have put um, the taste of sinful men in the driver's seat of the church instead of putting the word and the will of God, right? These are churches that are called seeker-oriented churches. And they ask not, what has God said? What does he require? And how do we do that in a heart with a heart that pleases him? Rather, they ask, what do those who don't want to come to church, what do they want in a church? Let's try to give them that. And so they're pandering not to God, the only real seeker that there is, but rather they're pandering to people who don't want to come to church. And so they cast the words of God behind them. Quote, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him. Psalm 96, 9. And the Fayette County Church says, nah, we don't really want to do that. Because holiness is uncomfortable. When you talk about the standards of like, don't covet your neighbor's stuff and your neighbor's wife and your neighbor's house or any of his stuff. That's an abrasive word to me because we're a culture of coveters and I'm one. And I don't want to see the standard of God's holiness, right? I certainly want to see it and then be told There's mercy for me in Christ when I repent. But the holiness of God feels oppressive. And we want to aim for people to be comfortable, people to be welcome. Do we want people to be welcome in our church and comfortable in our church? Of course. But we lead off with the the splendor of holiness. And we want to tremble before the word. Quote, I do not allow a woman to preach or exercise authority over a man. End quote. And the church in Fayette County says, nah, actually, we're totally fine with this. And so we have tons of women pastors in our county. 
Jesus, quote, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. You adults, if you want to look at a kid and figure out what to do, become like them, because to such belong the kingdom of God, and Fayette County Christians say, nah, we want to send them, see if you can think of a more unimaginable misnomer than this, we want to send them to children's church. What do you mean children's church? You're kicking them out of the church. This is the church, the gathering of the redeemed. Jesus says, let them come. And we say, nah, we don't want them to disturb us. They get noisy and they kick off their boots while the preacher is preaching. Quote, disciple the nations, baptize them, teach them obedience. And we say, nah, We're content to be private Christians and let the world deepen into chaos. There's too much to do. We can't swing it. And so we're not even going to try. There are two errors called out in this psalm. The error of doing the right things wrongly. And by wrongly, I mean doing the right things without a heart of gratitude. As though we're giving to God and not receiving from God. And then there's the error of not attempting the right things at all. And to both groups, God has this word in verses 22 and 23. He says, mark this then, you who forget God. I wonder, brother and sister, over the course of your day, how many times, if you're anything like me, you just get this like flash of like, I've been doing life for the last, I don't know how many hours Forgetting the fact that the Spirit of God reigns in my heart, permeates my home, has saved all of my children. Like we are surrounded by the goodness of God and I've been pretending like he's not anywhere close. We forget God all the time and so he says to us, mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. What mercy or what What undoing is there when God comes in judgment? There is none. Verse 23. This is what we're to listen to. It's a great word for us. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. What does God want from you? He wants you to receive from him and to say, thanks. God, thank you for this good that you've given me through your son, Jesus. You want to you wanna glorify God? Say thank you. And stop pretending like you're the one that's carrying the burden of the covenant. He's given everything. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will share the salvation of God. That's the, that's the word to those who say we don't need to, um, to obey. We're just going to cast his words behind us. Thanksgiving. So do the right things with gratitude. Do what he's told you to do, but do it with gratitude as a receiver, not a giver. And then endeavor to order your way rightly. God, what have you spoken? What do you require? What can we do? What do you expect of your children? And to those, he says, I will show the salvation of our God. So, Easter exhortations from this psalm. First of all, beware of the debtor's ethic. Okay? We are watching the Easter season. We're watching what Christ has given for us. And a common response is, what will you not do for the one who died for you? 
He did everything. And so what would you, what obedience would you hold back from him? And then we live as though the gift that he gave was a strings attached gift. Well, listen to me, Christian, it wasn't. It wasn't a strings attached gift. Like, I'll give you this, but it's going to require all of these other things. That's the debtor's ethic. We are to live rightly because living rightly before God is the most glad way to live. That's why we do what he says. Not because we're obligated to him, but because we are enamored with him. When the world says, why do you do it this way? We should not, in answer, look down and shamefacedly while drawing in the sand with our toes, kind of whisper, well, because God said so. This is what, you know, this is what he says. Rather, we should look heavenward with gladness and say, we do it this way because Christ is altogether lovely. And he told us to do it. That's why we do it. Because we're glad and we're grateful people. So, beware of the debtor's ethics. Secondly, be alert. Be on the alert for ingratitude. There is a reason gratitude and attitude sound so close together, right? Your attitude towards God and the world is so important because it determines how you see what you see. Your attitude and your, and your gratefulness determines how you see what you see. You're going to see some things. Will you see them through the lens of gratitude or ingratitude? Ingratitude is always trying to count how much money we don't have, right? It's always trying to count how uh, much taller other people are than me or how much better looking or more gifted or more fruitful other people are than me. We're always looking at what we do not have. Gratitude looks at the perfect track record of God. Times of all, we've all gone through tough times, but he's always been there. Um, this week, this is, it was amazing. God uh, sort of bookended my week with two pictures of this, right? Um, I got an invitation to, to gather with a bunch of pastors from Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma um, for, a, for a pastor's sort of fellowship. It wasn't a conference, it was just pastors hanging out. And it was put on by a pastor who's been decades in the service of the Lord. And um, he's in his, in his 60s. And just a seasoned, awesome brother, right? And so he has 15 of us sitting in a circle and he goes, I want to go around and I want you to give me the highs of ministry and the lows. I just want to share. And so we, we all got to hear and it was so edifying to hear like, oh, I know what you're talking about in both, in both the highs and in both the lows. And it was, you know, it was just really, really encouraging. And so he was the last one. So it goes around highs and lows and all these things. And then it goes around to him. And now... This guy has, in his church, he has one of the most prolific authors in our day. Um, You guys may or may not know uh, who it is, so I I don't need to say his name. But this guy has written volumes and volumes. I'm reading one of his books right now, and it's just immensely deepening my understanding of the book of Genesis. Just a master theologian, a master author. And this guy had a stroke not too long ago. And he's in his church, and he's like... This is, this is a hero of basically everybody but me in the room. I'm just learning about it. And he's like, you know, he, he'll, he'll be talking and then. He, he will think of the next word. It's like this pain. Think about an author who's been writing his entire life and he can't think of the word Tuesday. 
And it's this hard thing for, for him to watch. And he's like, so I'm watching, I'm watching that. And then it, when he talked about the highs, well, this is my ministry high. He was like, uh, two nights ago, I'm laying in bed and I woke up at like two. And I reach over to my wife of like however many decades. And he said, I put my hand on her back. And this is what I heard. And he said, for the rest, there's MasterCard. That's a high. What is he talking about? It's just life. My, I, I have a wife. I remember a time where I was single. And I was, God, I need, I need a bride. And here I have this lovely person who's with me, who's alive. I still have her. She's, she's, in, she's, she's in my life. And so he's looking at just like this, what we might call the common simple things, right? And he's just glorying in them. And then fast forward, uh, I think it was Friday, I went with the girls to the coffee shop, and um, I'm sitting there studying, and I, there, a, car, a car pulls up, and, and uh, it's people that I had met a couple of years ago, and please, this is going to sound so judgmental, I really don't mean it this way, I'm just, it, it's what God put in front of me to see humanity, right? This is, a, this is an older couple, and they are really suffering, okay? Um, and she's struggling to get out of the car and he's walking behind her to make sure she doesn't fall. And so I got up and I went and I opened the door and it was probably the worst invitation to conversation in the history of invitations. How are y'all doing today? When very clearly like they were hurting and she said, not good and just walked by. Now I get it. Times get hard, and so I've been there where, like, you can't say, you can't sing psalms, you can't be glad, you can't look people in the face. I get it. I get it. There's hard, there's hard times. There's really, really hard times. But your attitude will affect the way you see hard times. Listen, they're this older couple, and you know what? He could, he could reach over and put his hand on his wife's back and hear, and for that, we can thank God, okay? So beware the debtor's ethic. Be on alert for ingratitude. And lastly, be mindful of this. While it is true that if you have Christ and nothing else, you have every reason to be thankful. If you have Jesus and nothing, you have all the reason to be grateful. But listen to me. You have Christ and so much more. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? He's given all things into our hands. It's an already done thing. All things are ours and we are Christ's. So in this season where we remember that Jesus has performed everything necessary for us to be received by God and to be happy forever with him, we ought to be marked by thankfulness. It's fitting for us to be glad and to be grateful. Look, brothers and sisters, here is bread and wine. Just look. Here is the token of Christ's affection for us and his provision for us. And this token is his very real presence with us by his Holy Spirit. He doesn't want to take anything from you today. He wants to give himself to us so that we would be glad and be thankful. As you come to the table today, think not of your sin, but think of his mercy. 
Think not about your covenant obligations, but about your covenant privileges. Are you supposed to mind your manners at the Lord's table? Of course you are. But he didn't call you here just so that you can mind your manners. He wants to hear you laugh from the deep middle of your glad and satisfied heart. So come to the table. The king has called you. Come be grateful. Come be glad. Come. Welcome to Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, we repeat the prayer that Trey prayed over us. Put in us a thankful heart today. No no better place, no more fitting place for us to focus on those things that you've given us than at the Lord's table. Because here we remember, we remember that you have held nothing back from us. You've held back no good thing but you freely gave over that which is greatest. And you've welcomed us. So Lord, help us not to be like the Israelites who did all the right things, who went through the motions, but had no gratitude. God, we're not coming to this table to make you pleased. We're coming to this table to say thank you and to receive your son, Jesus. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, that you would work deep gratitude into our hearts and minds. Help us, Lord, to open our eyes today. This morning, as we come to the table, to look around and to see image bearers of God who will live eternally, who know you as Father, who know their sins forgiven by the shed blood of your Son, Jesus, who are indwelled by your Holy Spirit and who have been put into fellowship with one another. These are great good things. We have every reason to be grateful as we come to the table. And so would you come and would you draw near to us, Lord? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.